Well, turn with me to your Bibles, Romans chapter 8, verse 5. You'll find the uh, passage we're looking at this morning also in your worship folder. It's a great delight to be with you this morning and uh, experience already this wonderful dedication and uh, fantastic music. And now we come to God's Word, Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Let me uh, introduce it for us uh, like this. In uh, 2008, a particular TV show called House MD was actually the most popular TV show in the entire world. Uh, It's uh, since completed its run. It ran from 2004 to 2012. And in this show, uh, the star, a man called House, was a misanthropic but brilliant medical doctor. He specialized in diagnosis. He was addicted to pain medication. Uh, He flouted the hospital rules. And every single episode features him solving some intractable uh, medical problem or other uh, through a combination of his own brilliance and um, psychological insight of the patient and indeed of his own staff. Uh, The creator of the show said that House was based upon a somewhat earlier out-of-the-box thinker, Sherlock Holmes. Now that kind of creative brilliance in House, or the more recent show, Sherlock, is appealing and popular. Here's the thing. Christians are no longer famous for their minds. In fact, the average caricature of a Christian is of Ned Flanders. The fictional evangelical character in the long-running cartoon The Simpsons. Ned is friendly, nice, but to be frank, sickeningly dumb. Uh, Christian leaders have noticed this caricature of Christians and they've tried to respond to it. Uh, They've written tomes seeking to address the balance. Uh, The most famous is called the scandal of the evangelical mind. But the perception has stuck. And nowadays, Christians are not only those idiots who believe in creationism and, uh, you know, wear out-of-fashion sweaters. They are also frequently labeled as political bigots. Their mind appears to many today to be closed. And in particular, anti-freedom of sexual expression, if not actually racist. All of which makes it hard for us to truly appreciate what the Bible means by the mind of the Spirit. Uh, Clearly, the mind of the Spirit is meant to be a good thing. And the contrasting mind of the flesh is intended to be less, less attractive. 
But what exactly does it mean to have the mind of the Spirit? And if that is, broadly speaking, thinking like a Christian, is that actually such a great thing to do? Contrastingly, what is the mind of the flesh? And if that is, broadly speaking, thinking like a non-Christian, is, is that such a bad thing after all? It all depends, says Paul, on your definition. Listen with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This is telling us that by definition, our mindset, it's a noun here, is in one or other camp. We either have a flesh mind or a spirit mind. There is no gray area, no in-between position, no compromise. Your mind is either of the flesh or it is of the spirit. And Paul makes this crystal clear in verse 9. If you have a Bible open, you can see it. There he says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so while the word is used differently in Paul's letter to the Galatians and a little bit later in this chapter, verse 12, he will make an appeal to holiness based upon this definition. Here, the flesh means what we are all like as humans before we become real followers of Jesus. And the spirit means what all true followers are like once they follow Jesus. By definition, there is a completely different way of looking at life. And the mind means that way of thinking, the taste and attitude and preference and desire. So this is comparing first the way a non-Christian thinks with, second, the way a Christian thinks. First, the way a non-Christian thinks is according to the flesh. Now, I, like you, have many non-Christian friends. And to say that someone who does not follow Jesus has set their minds on the things of the flesh appears to be at least unkind. But I must put away the Ned Flanders approach to spirituality. Never give offense and take seriously what the Bible says. The Bible says that all of us outside of Christ are not filled with wonderful spiritual potential just waiting for a bit of religious polish to make us shine. Oh no. We are enemies of God. 
And for some of us, our enmity with God is very respectable. I have a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, and a nice little mistress on the side. I have a nice career, a nice bank balance. I give away just enough to nicely assuage my conscience. And after a tip to social charity, I build myself a nice little massive mansion. I have a nice quiet life, just making enough to make ends meet. And I'm nice enough never to bother anyone by actually standing up for Jesus. I'm like the person who rents a house, keeps it in ideal condition, and refuses to pay rent to the owner. As someone who does not follow Jesus, I am then someone who does not want to give God the glory and worship that is his due as my creator. This is what Paul means by the flesh. He does not mean that non-Christians are necessarily more evil than Christians in an overt sense. That would be ridiculous. What he means is that their mind is ultimately set in a direction not following Jesus. This is a definition. It's uncomfortable to say for even me as a preacher, but it is true. You know, the church today, I am convinced, needs to relearn this definition. I am convinced that the failure to draw this distinction is the fundamental problem with the evangelical church in the Bible Belt. We have adopted a Home Depot theology, as one of our pastors this week called it when we were discussing this text. That is, you can do it, we can help. And so we view those who are not yet Christians as basically wanting to do what God wants. And then we preach a message that we're going to come alongside and give them some tools to help them do that. That whole approach is wrong. And what it does is it fills churches with people who are religious but don't want to please Jesus. And then we wonder why sometimes such churches have difficult congregational meetings. Or why churches have worldly politics in them. Or why churches become religious golf clubs or merely social get-togethers. It is because fundamentally there are people in it who have never heard this definition. The mind of the flesh is set in a different direction. I remember a conversation I once had with a Muslim friend. I spent a little bit of time in an Orthodox Christian country, and as some of you will know, uh, Orthodox folk quite like their crosses, and there was a particular cross that this country had that was quite appealing to me, and so I, I was uh, wearing one of these crosses. I got it at some little market stall at some point, and there it was around my neck. I, I thought it was a beautiful cross, and for me, the cross means love and um, self-sacrifice for the sake of someone else. 
My Muslim friend explained to me that for Muslims, that was not always the case. For them, the cross meant the Crusades. And not love, but bloodshed. Now, I am fully aware that the history of the Crusades is far from straightforward and in many ways was actually a response to initial Islamic aggression. But the reality is that when we say things like the way a non-Christian thinks, we have another problem of definition in our own times, which is this. What exactly is a Christian? People associate Christianity today with a particular political party, or they associate Christianity with being on the wrong side of history regarding the anti-slavery movement. This is a huge mistake, I agree. William Wilberforce, an evangelical Christian, was at the forefront of abolishing slavery. And yet, it is also true, there were Christians who opposed that movement in certain parts of the country. And so, here is how this definition helps. Not everything that says it is a Christian has the mind of the Spirit. When we say non-Christian, we do not mean non-religious. You know, I've often shocked my non-Christian friends by refusing to be called religious. It always surprises them because I'm a pastor. But personally, I cannot stand religion. Smells and bells and chapels and funny words meaning funny things to only the initiated. Christ I love. You can keep religion. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously stated that what we need now is religionless Christianity. No, the way a non Christian thinks does not mean the way a non religious person thinks. Often, religious people have done awful things, shameful things, horrible things. You see, followers of Jesus are a highly valuable commodity, and so they are often faked, I'm afraid. Forgery is only worth doing when you're forging something valuable. No one bothers forging a penny, but a $100 note might make sense. A fake diamond, if possible, could make you rich. And there is a sweet, slightly scary Attractive glory to a man or woman filled with the Spirit. And a man or woman who is still in the flesh, that is not yet a Christian, may well be religious. Especially in a place like Wheaton. You know, our effectiveness as an outreach, as a church, will not just come through doing things for the homeless, as good as that is, and we do that. 
or just frantically looking to find the poor and disadvantaged, as good as that is, and we have programs that do that as well. But our effectiveness will come as we see the non-converted evangelical. The religious person who knows his Hail Marys, born again. Such an old-fashioned word, you say, reminds me of Jimmy Carter. Jesus used it first, you know. There is a fundamental, foundational, complete distinction by definition. There is either the mind of the flesh or the mind of the spirit. Do you think like Jesus? That's the question. Do you think of fake religion the way that Jesus thought of the Pharisees? Do you think of the poor the way that Jesus thought of the poor? Do you think of the gospel the way that Jesus thought of the gospel? Are you filled with joy the way Jesus was filled with joy, even in the face of the cross? Now, of course, mature Christians, they can also struggle at times. But for those who are in Christ, there is a different mindset. Basically, we want to please God, as Paul puts it later in this chapter. Do you want to please God? Or do you want to do your God thing and get that out of the way and then rush off so you can do the thing that you really want to do? Do you have a hunger for God? A desire for God? If not, you are not a Christian. A baby desires milk from her mother. A Christian wants God's word. It is a matter of definition. Do you want to please God? I do not mean are you perfect in every area of behavior. None of us is. But do you want God? Do you want to hear his word? If not then it's time to get converted. And then you will think the way a Christian thinks, which is the second half of Paul's definition here. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I was uh, reflecting on what would be a, a good sort of illustration for what Paul was saying here, and I came up with one that I thought would really work and is, in a sense, quite emotive. Due to the wonders of modern medical technology, it is possible for children who have been born, practically speaking, deaf, through cochlear ear implants, to hear again. And you could go to um, YouTube and watch the faces of these children as they hear. 
their mother's voice for the first time. One YouTube clip I saw was of a little girl with her head buried in her arms like this, face on the desk. And then as the implant was turned on, she could hardly dare believe it. She just turned to one side with a massive smile on her face. And the parents weep, of course. The camera, which, you know, a little cell phone camera or something, starts to shake as the mum or dad holding it can hardly contain themselves. For some of the children, it's almost too much. The world in which we live is loud. The horns honk, the, the, the buses rev their engines, their brothers and sisters make a whole bunch of noise, and now they are immersed in this full-on world of sound. Imagine what it must have been like when Jesus healed deaf people. His healing was not partial, I believe, and with it would have come the ability to be able to discern more fully the meaning of sounds, I I suppose. Imagine what it must have been like when Jesus gave sight to the blind. When the apostles, in the name of Jesus, made a lame man walk. whole new world opens up before them, a world of walking, a world of hearing, a world of seeing. This does not mean that those who enter into this world never stumble, never hear things they should not hear or see things they should not see. What it means is that we can now see. We sense the wrongness of things even when we do what is wrong. And we have a taste for the beauty and delight of pleasing God. Our mind is the mind of the Spirit. Our desire, our will, our thoughts, the tendencies of our thinking, we're now able to hear, see, taste that the Lord is good. So we come to church. And certainly we discern that not everything is perfect, but we're able to hear the word of God as a word from God to us, his sheep hear his voice, and they follow. We take a walk in the woods, and while we're able to discern that not everything is perfect and nature has fallen as red in tooth and claw and things die and decay, at the same time, we can see in the natural world around us the handprints of the Creator. In the songbird, we hear the song of the Spirit. 
In the blue sky, we see the eternal expanse of the heavens, and in the woods, we hear the echo of the quiet footfall of the one who walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve in the beginning. Our eyes are open now. It's not a matter of being brighter or more intelligent. It's a matter of seeing, tasting, wanting to please God, and seeing in the things of God the pleasure of God Himself. Our pleasure is God, whose pleasure is out of this world good, beyond and above and higher and better than anything that the pleasures of this passing world affords. We see in money an opportunity to give. We're not perfect with how we use our resources, but our taste is now to use them for him and his kingdom. We have no more desire to hoard than a factory has a desire to keep its stock and not sell them. We want to please God by investing our resources in heaven's agenda for the evangelization of the world. So to invest in the eternal bank where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves not break in and steal. We are all missionaries. We long to send missionaries to the far corners of the world, of course. And we recognize and honor their special sacrifice but with Muslims on our doorstep, Hindus down the street, and the unconverted evangelical, our neighbor, we delight to use our working gifts, our jobs, as missionary opportunities to live for Christ. We are all priests, And we are all ministers. And we are all loving to give pleasure to God as we find pleasure in Him. And the Bible? The Bible is not for us a prison to stop us from thinking. Oh, no. The Bible is a seed that is planted in our mind. And from it, thoughts and ideas and dreams and insights germinate now and for all eternity. The Bible's not a a jail cell with bars around our artistic creativity. No. The Bible's like a pebble thrown in a pond whose influence spreads out to the furthest Sure, of our mind, bread thrown on the waters, a word that we know will not return to him empty, but will accomplish what he has designed it to do. And worship? Worship for us is not an exercise in making sure that we get what we want in a worship service. Worship is not an exercise in making sure that things are done just right according to how they were done in this place or that place, in the past or somewhere else that we wish to emulate. Worship for us is about enjoying the one we worship. 
we are fearful of him. But fearful like a child with a father who trembles at his knee, the doorstep to the voice of the Almighty himself who urges us to call him father. And whose eyes are like burning fire and feet like polished bronze and who speaks and the world melts. And we, we who have the mind of the Spirit, melt with pleasure. Do you? If so, be confident. Remember how Paul began this chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then how he concludes the chapter. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Who are these people who can be so confident? Here he is defining it. Those who have the mind of the Spirit. If you have the mind of the Spirit, be confident. If not, be converted. Um, I quite like stories of farmers. I think this is probably because there is no chance that I would ever make a good farmer. And so they intrigue me. This story of a farmer uh, is when he was at a board meeting of some organization or other. And you know what board meetings can be like. They can go on for a while sometimes. And this farmer, like most farmers, had been up early that morning. And so There he was in this board meeting, and he was longing to draw the whole thing to a point of decision. And eventually he put his hand in the air, and when he was called upon, he said this. He said, you know, for me to have a harvest, I need first to plow the field. And those who love to consider things and then reconsider them and then consider them again were encouraged by this. Well, he's encouraging plowing first. And then he said, but you know, plowing takes more than turning it over in your mind. Becoming a Christian takes more than merely turning it over in your mind. It is not merely a matter of liking hearing good sermons or liking religious things or liking reading Christian books or liking discussing matters of importance for the church and the country. There is a fundamental decision. And that decision, strange though it may seem, is one that you must ask for the power to make. Paul calls it in Romans the obedience of faith. It is a total reorientation of the self towards God and away from your own desires. It is abandonment to God. It is submission to God. It is not paying lip service to religious things. There are plenty of people like that who are no nearer God than was the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray only to confess that he thought he was better than the tax collector in the pew next to him. 
That is not having the mind of the spirit. It is having the mind of the flesh in a religious form. To have the mind of the Spirit means asking God to give you His Spirit. That's the start. Will you do that today? There's no third way. It is either the mind of the flesh or the mind of the Spirit. And to have the mind of the Spirit requires having the Spirit. So will you ask for His Spirit? Will you be converted today? But if you do have the Spirit, if you do desire to please God, and while you do not perfectly please God, yet you still want to please God even when you know that you don't please God. If you are one of his sheep who hear his voice, then be confident. Now, there are so many reasons, aren't there, these days not to be confident as a Christian? But as the French say, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they are the same. Do we really think this is the first time that the church has faced opposition or that Christians have been caricatured unfairly as idiots or bigots? Let me think with me about the people to whom this letter right here was written. There were Jewish followers of Jesus in the congregation. Of that we can be fairly sure, for there are so many references to Moses' law in Romans. And some, at least, of the members of the church that Paul greets at the end of the letter were his fellow Jews. He tells us that. What must it have been like? To have been a Jewish believer of Jesus at the time, thrown out of the synagogue, it's more than likely, persecuted, we know recently, by a Roman emperor who blamed a disturbance in Rome on the Jews, and after which they had only probably just recently returned, and then, it is likely, returned to a church that had become rather more Gentile than they preferred in their absence. Their whole heritage seemed under threat, not only from the pagans around, but from the people within the church who were insisting on living in ways that were not exactly according to the strictest interpretations of their law, and which was even gaining support and encouragement from the apostle himself. They must have felt caught between a rock and a hard place, not knowing where to turn for encouragement. Or think what it must have been like to have been a Roman citizen by birth and a member of this church in Rome. Nero, the emperor of infamy to history, was on the scene. And while his so-called good years may have extended for a while, his horrible persecutions were not long to come. And so when Paul says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of God, do you think? He is merely listing these horrible options for rhetorical effect. I think not. For he quotes, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. These options, life 
and death were all too real to the congregants who received this encouragement, to assurance and confidence. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, assurance and confidence because they have the mind of the Spirit. And are we to lack confidence? Because we face, if not death and sword, then occasional ridicule. Threats to our tax status or our jobs for baking cakes. False accusations as bigots. It would be shameful if that were the case when we compare what we face with what those early Christians faced when they were thrown to the lions. But not only shameful, it would be missing the point of God's purpose and God's plan. He delights to use such things for the advance of his kingdom. Historian of the remarkable evangelistic success of the early church, Michael Green, in his astonishingly important book, Evangelism in the Early Church, recounts what it was that gave this early church such prominent success. In summary, it was two things. White-hot passion for personal evangelism. and compassionate caring for the sick and the poor. Here's how it worked. When the plague hit a city, the Christians stayed while the pagans fled to the country, and the Christians started the hospitals that were ever more known after their names, and before long they were the social fabric that was keeping the otherwise dissipating empire together. While every day at work and at home, on the streets and on the train, with a smile of confident joy, as they face possible slaughter in the catacombs and as slaves and as citizens, they joyfully and constantly told all who would give them a moment to listen about the one called Christ who gave them his spirit. And if you have the mind of the Spirit, that's what you will do too. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we bow before you and acknowledge that there are times when it seems like quite a while since we 
hungered for you. We pray that you would renew us by your spirit. But Lord, uh, for some of us here, if we were to be truly honest, while we grew up in a Christian home or have been surrounded by Christian things, and uh, for the purposes of statistics and surveys, we would be classified as religious If we were to be truly honest this morning, we don't want you. That is not our mindset. For us, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would give us the mind of the Spirit. And so together, we ask that with this mind of your Spirit, you would give us in this day great confidence. We know we must be wise, so we do not ask for foolish boldness. But we must not be timid. Great confidence we ask, Lord, knowing that we cannot be separated from your love, knowing that you're sovereign over these times and these days. Lord, would it be that when the historians of the early 21st century American church are writing their narrative, they would tell the story of one little town called Wheaton, and a church that because it had the mind of the Spirit was confident. Use us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.